This is a podcast by The Straits Times. We have read your pieces like with really great interest uh, over the months. Uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit about you know how you actually started writing them because I mean you're not a scientist or so, um, in the health industry. I think what 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 defines what what is a scientist, right? I have a couple of engineering degrees, and I think for me for me, scientist is not the person who spends. Uh, a life in academia, but rather uh, a person who thinks critically, who looks at evidence, who makes hypotheses on how the world works, and then works on confirming whether the, those hypotheses uh, are true or not based on the data. And uh, that's very much what I have, I have done uh, with the coronavirus. It was February and Iran was starting to have a lot of cases. South Korea had a lot of cases. And Italy also, they were growing uh, more and more heavily. And so I was uh, following that very closely. I was posting every day on Facebook. Um, and the impact that my posts were having were, was out of this world. And right. so I kept posting. And uh, very organically, at some point, a friend of mine said, hey, I need you to, to, to put everything that you've posted in one place for my mm-hmm. friends in Paris who need to hear that because they don't want to close their offices and they need to be convinced. So I just put all of that together in one place. And that was really the first article, the, the article, um, Why You Must Act Now, that was uh, read by 40 million people. After that, uh, I posted The Hammer and the Dance like 10 days later, eight days later, and that one was seen by around 15 to 20, pe- 20 million people. So you were surprised by the success and you know, the, you know, how, how it went viral. It's completely impossible to predict something like that. And mm. also, it will never happen again. Mm. There's a, a, a series of factors that gathered so that the entire world was interested mm. in one topic at the same time and nobody knew anything and really everybody wanted to learn everything about it. And so you never get those circumstances. And then on top of this, this article happened to be the one that people wanted. If you look ahead to the next, uh, okay, three months might be even too long. The next three weeks or six weeks, you know, wh- what do you see the situation? There, there, I think there are two big challenges left in the world right now with regards to coronavirus. There's many, but the two biggest ones. First is outside of the wealthiest countries, many applied the hammer and it did not work. And that is a catastrophe. You have countries like uh, Peru, Colombia, Guatemala, Argentina, South Africa, uh, Kenya, India, Bangladesh. All of these applied hammers. And in none of these, the hammer worked. And so in some cases, it was very aggressive. The the hammer in, in Peru was very aggressive, for example, and in India too. And so... That's very, very concerning because these are countries that really want to make it work and they don't want to go into herd immunity. Uh, but right now they're forced because they have this problem. I've been talking with uh, people in Peru, in Argentina, in South Africa, in, in, in Kenya to, uh, to understand better what happened locally. And there's a few patterns. It looks like in most cases, in most of these countries, most cases are concentrated in the biggest cities, if not the capital. Uh, and usually within the capital, they are concentrated in the poorest areas. Usually the poorest areas uh, have uh, people who need to go to work. They can't work from home and they don't have savings, enough savings 
to to last for months. Uh, many of them don't have running water at home. Mm. Many of them don't have a fridge at home. Um, and so as a result, they are forced to go out of their home. They're forced to go to the market to buy uh, food. They're forced to maybe go and get water. They are forced to go and work. And so obviously, when that happens, it's just more likely that the uh, the uh, outbreak cannot be controlled. And for these areas, you need a special, special treatment, which mm. usually means you need to go and give people the food and the money and the water that they need. And uh, you need to extract them from their home whenever you can if they're sick. And you need to be testing massively these areas. Right? So that's one of the things I'm working on. The second thing is the second wave in, the, in developed countries. Most countries are in the phase of lifting the hammer, but not quite dancing. Uh, some of them are doing a better job than others. Uh, but that's dangerous because if you lift the hammer without fully dancing, you will have a second outbreak. Uh, and so the second, the second, this other piece that I'm working on is focused on all the details of how to dance. Right. But you did say, I mean, you did write that um, the dance is actually the harder part. Yeah, of course. The hammer is easy. And uh, it, it is, it's also one of the things that, that unfortunately most people did not understand. Like the goal of the hammer was twofold. Mm-hmm. One, to stop the epidemic. And the second one, more importantly, is to learn how to get out of the hammer, to learn to dance, to get as soon as possible, as fast as possible, outside of the hammer. Uh, and there was very heavy urgency to learn to dance as fast as possible. And that is not something that most governments did. Most governments uh, focused when they had the healthcare crisis, they focused on the healthcare crisis. And they didn't focus on learning how to dance. And they assume that just by, like once it's controlled, you leave the hammer and you're good. And so, and so the dance, uh, there's so many uh, countries, for example, that three months still don't do contact tracing well. It is just mind-boggling. It is mind-boggling. You have three months to figure this out. It haven't yet. Masks, something that took forever. Uh, and, and, and there's still debate on whether they, they work or not. And, and it's just, it's just, it's just crazy. Uh, just like from an ROI perspective, return on investment perspective, it just makes no sense not to do that. And so, and so uh, you, you see, and then you have many more things that people have not explored the way they should. Like, for example, uh, there's very little conversation around early um early monitoring like you don't want to identify uh, an outbreak because you suddenly have 200 cases in your hands you want to be able to identify that happening two weeks before it happens and there are ways actually to do this from sewage testing Mm. to um to um, trends of searches for symptoms on, on on google and things like that and so and so that is one of these examples of things that are just mind-boggling that everybody should be doing now. And yet after three months, they're still not doing well. What's your, your take on how the Asia is, uh, you know, combating the virus? If you look at uh, China, South Korea, Japan, Vietnam, Taiwan, Hong Kong, uh, even Thailand, Singapore, uh, those are probably the, the, the biggest uh, examples. And each country has taken a slightly different approach but each one of these approaches has been reasonably successful, right? Uh, China went for the authoritarian approach, and I worked for them. South Korea went for the uh, 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 intelligent dance since day one, uh, while closing very little on that word. Taiwan went for something very similar, slightly less tech, 
based, uh, especially on the contract tracing, but it worked really, really well for them, especially because they were on top of this since day one. Like it stopped, they, they stopped the uh, incoming travelers since day one. And Vietnam is another country that has done this really, really well. I can't rely on their numbers as much as I rely on, on other countries' run numbers. So I don't usually take them as an example when I write about the, uh, the virus. But if everything they publish is true, then it is definitely a massive example and a great example that you don't need super advanced tech to really control this. You just need a lot of uh, leadership and proper authority. Um, I think Singapore uh, is, for me, the most interesting example in the world because it combined so many of the right things that it highlighted the few that it didn't do perfectly and that caused the outbreak that the city suffered, right? So the fact that it did not close the borders until a bit too late, the fact that uh, uh, the masking was disincentivized until the beginning of April, the fact that contact tracing was quite manual w- without very big teams and that trace together uh, uh, had too much, too many hopes put on it. I think those are the exact uh, uh, perfect examples for the rest of the world to know. Uh, thankfully, uh, Singapore, the way it is, A, it's a city, so it's easier to control and it has one of the best governances in the world. So, so you guys can control this despite the fact that the epidemic is concentrated in the, in the, in the dorms, uh, and in the immigrant uh, population. But I think, I think that also just highlighted again the same issue that we ended up seeing in the developing world. What happened in Singapore is exactly what's happening in Lima. It's exactly what's happening in Buenos Aires. Yeah. It's exactly what's happening in, in India is probably the country from which we can learn the most. Are you optimistic about a vaccine? I was I was thinking, how do we define optimistic in this context? Um, for me, optimistic in this context is, is the vaccine going to come soon enough so that it does not become extremely hard for years to dense? Because what, what we've seen in, in, uh, in Beijing and South Korea is going to happen everywhere in the world. There will be further outbreaks and there will be further closures of localized areas, right? Um, and, and so we're not going to be free until this vaccine comes. And if this vaccine comes for years, it would have been better to follow Sweden's strategy because it's so hard to dance for such a long period of time and to control it that it would be better, right? For me, the question is, is that vaccine going to come substantially before the, these, these, uh, four years? And in that regard, I am, um, I am optimistic. When you have a hundred candidates, uh, the likelihood that one of them is going to be successful is higher. Mm-hmm. Um, and also the coronavirus is not, uh, is not mutating as fast as, for example, flus. So there's a chance we can, we can create a vaccine. Thanks very, very much for your time. That was an SPH podcast by The Straits Times. Find us on Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts or streaming on Google Home. Do feedback to us at podcast.sph.com.sg. You can also check out more podcasts on various topics at The Straits Times, The Business Times and Money FM 89.3.